Romans chapter 11. Our text this evening is found in verses 33 to 36. As you're turning, once again, I'd just like to say what a rich privilege it is to share God's word with you men. I've been praying for this for months uh, and eager to be with you. Uh, And so it's a great joy to be with you. We've already prayed for the Lord to illumine our eyes. And so please, Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When the 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards made his way to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, He went there to minister to two congregations, one Native American, one English. Uh, But he also went, I think, with the mindset of doing some work. And while he was in Stockbridge from 1757 until January 1758, he wrote some of his most important treatises, Freedom of the Will and the Great Christian Doctrine of Original Sin being the two most important. But there were two essays that were written uh, that we have come to know together as the two dissertations. Uh, One was the nature of true virtue, and and the other was the end for which God created the world. Uh, And though these two writings weren't published until after his death, it it seems clear, at least it seems clear to me, uh, that those two writings really served as a capstone uh, in which you could read so much of what Edwards was trying to do, theologically speaking. Particularly, it was the the first essay, The End for Which God Created the World, in which Edwards argued that the end or the, the purpose for all creation was ultimately to be found in God's own purpose, which is another way of saying that that the purpose or the end for all creation was ultimately to be found in glorifying God. And this is the way Edwards put it. He said, for it appears that all that is ever spoken of in Scripture as the ultimate end of God's work is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. The thing signified by that name, the glory of God, when spoken of as the supreme and ultimate end of the work of creation of all God's works, is the emanation and the true external expression of God's internal glory and fullness. Did you hear what Edwards is saying? Let me, let me say it this way. What he's saying is that, that God has done everything. And God is doing everything. And God will do everything in such a way as to display his glory. Or to, to have it harmonized with what Dr. Kelly said last night. The, the beauty of Christ as, as experienced within the Godhead, ad intra, must flow out of God, ad extra, to his world. It must be expressed. It must be emanated. But it also must be reflected back to God because it's from him and through him and to him are all things. The glory of God must be displayed, 
but it also must be reflected so that in, in such a way that, that everything, all creation, will be summed up in God and all creation shall know a taste and a measure of the glory of God. The, the end for which everything is is that God may be all in all, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. That, that is why God made us. We know this. We know this. But we need to hear it again. And we need to take our glorious theology of sola dea gloria, the glory of God and the beauty of Christ, and it needs men to move from our heads to our hearts. And so we must come again, not just to hear Edwards, but to hear Romans 11 and to hear this glorious doxology once again. Because you men know why Paul is singing this song of praise. He has just completed in a small scale from chapters 9 to 11, but particularly in the big scale, starting in chapter 1 and ending in chapter 11, describing this glorious gospel of God, which is the power unto salvation, both to Jew and Greek. And the wonder of what God is up to is that Jew and Gentile would would not be separated forever, but rather Jew and Gentile would be brought together in this, this one people of God called church. Something that for Paul, with his Jewish theology, was utterly unthinkable, utterly unspeakable, utterly mind-blowing, to which he could only put his hand on his mouth and say, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. It was utterly unlooked for by Paul in some level. Oh, yes, certainly the Jews would be for the the blessing of the nations. But to have Jew and Gentile together in this one people of God called church, this this was something unlooked for and only could be accomplished by the sovereign purposes of God. And so for him, the only possible response was praise. The only possible response was to say to him, be glory forever. Amen. Because the reality was, as Paul was seeing, was that that all things, Jew, Gentile, creation, providence, all would come together in such a way as to reflect the very beauty and the very glory of God. Again, we know this. And yet, brothers, if you're like me. The week-to-week grind causes us to forget it. Sitting in the counseling room, as I did last week, with a man who's a member of our church and has only come once in two years, and lo and behold, his marriage is falling apart, and other details that put some of the pieces in the puzzle, why we hadn't been seeing him, were revealed. And I sat there with him and, and wept with him over his falling apart marriage as he uttered out, is this the best it's going to be for me? And in the week-to-week grind of 11 o'clock every Sunday morning, and in the daily grind of being in the counseling room with situations that, humanly speaking, look so helpless and hopeless, I forget if no one else does. That for, from him, And through him and to him are all things. I get caught up in the mundane. And guess what, brothers? So do you. And we serve churches where we have people who live their life in the mundane, 
chasing after the things that, that they, they believe will satisfy the deepest longings of their heart, only to discover that it doesn't. And so they go for ever bigger houses and ever bigger cars and the best education for their children and the house on the coast or the house at the beach and the season tickets at Ole Miss or State. And they're running and running and running. Why? Because their hearts were made for something more, which is to see and to savor and to be satisfied in this glory of God. That's why they were made. That's why we were made. We were made to see and to savor this God who has displayed his glory and longs for it to be reflected back to him from his creation. That's why we were made. And you see that in the way we, we chase after and rejoice in the lesser glories. The good glories, but the lesser glories of our lives. We rejoice in the national championships. We rejoice in the winning touchdown pass. We rejoice in the 12-point buck taken down. We rejoice in our 12-year-old hit making all-stars for the third time. We rejoice in our daughter's graduation with honors from Ole Miss. We rejoice in all these lesser glories that are all in themselves good. And yet we try to satisfy our hearts with these things, and they do not satisfy. They're ephemeral. They don't last. Why? Because, men, you were made for so much more. You were made to see and to savor and to be satisfied in this glorious being called the triune God. And so we need to come again. If you don't, I do. We need to come again. And we need, if we can, to take the measure of the glory of God. That's what Paul invites us to. He invites us to come in this, this song of praise, in this doxology, to take the measure of the glory of God if we can, in order to see how glorious a being this God is, and how great this glory is, and how satisfying it really is for your heart and for mine. And the first thing that we see when Paul invites us to measure the glory of God is how deep it is. How deep is the glory of God? What does he say? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. That word depths is often used to speak of a deep well or the depths of the ocean, that which can't hardly be fathomed or sounded out or measured. And part of what Paul's telling us then is, is how deep, how, how unfathomable, how bottomless, are the wisdom and knowledge of God, the, the very character of our God. And even as we heard Dr. Kelly last night open up John 14 for us, and we thought, many of us perhaps for the first time, of the mutual indwelling of Father, Son, Spirit, and, and this eternal relationship of the three, just contemplating that, our, our, we see how deep the, the very character of our God is. And so Paul, in part, is telling us, oh, come see how deep God's glory is in his very character, in his very being. But I think he's saying something else. Because this comes at the very end of 11 chapters of telling us of the, of the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God and working out our salvation. After all, when you consider the, the salvation that the triune God wrought out for us through Jesus Christ... How deep it is. How unfathomable it is. 
I mean, consider with me how, how deep and unfathomable it is that God would include Jew and Gentile in this one people called church. That which is circumcised with that which is uncircumcised together in one body, worshiping the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit together. How unfathomable it is that they would come together in this body called church. How deep and unfathomable that God would work redemption in such a way that the eternal Lord of glory would become man and would dwell among us. And we would behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, and yet it would be veiled. And that he would live and die, not for his sins, but for our sins. And that he would remain under the power of death for three days, and then he would be raised from the dead. How deep and unfathomable this is. Angels couldn't have thought of this plan of redemption. This was beyond all finding out, a mystery hidden for the ages. Yes, certainly, there were clues all along the way in the Old Testament. And yet even the disciples themselves, though Jesus told them three times what would happen, did not understand until after it happened. How deep and unfathomable this glorious salvation wrought out in Jesus Christ was. How deep and unfathomable it is that God would overcome sin and death brought by the first Adam through the dying righteousness of the second Adam. After all, the, the enemies of God must have rejoiced when the serpentine evil behind the snake entered into that perfect garden that was planted just for the crowning of creation and persuaded Adam to forsake obedience to God and rather become God-like himself. Certainly the evil powers thought that he had, that he had triumphed, and yet God had a deeper wisdom still, a deeper knowledge still, because there would come a second Adam through whom life would come, and Adam all died, but in Christ shall all be made alive. This was deep wisdom and deep knowledge. No wonder as Paul contemplated these things, he said, oh, how deep. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. For here in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we gain a glimpse of God's infinite knowledge and infinite wisdom. And so, brothers, come. Come drink from this well. Come drink from this deep well. We drink from other wells, don't we? We drink from shallow wells. We drink from dirty wells. Some of you have been drinking from shallow wells recently. You've been drinking from the shallow well of success. It sounds strange to say. Things have blown up at your church. And yet the quicksands that come with success and of your church growing far beyond what you could have asked or imagined, the quicksands of success are causing you to drink that shallow, sandy water, and it's not satisfying your heart. You thought it would. You thought if you could take that church from 100 to 300 or from 300 to 500 or from 500 to 1,000, that it was going to satisfy your heart, but it doesn't. Others of you are drinking from the, the shallow well of your marriage. It's a good thing, your marriage. And yet you have been relying increasingly, as things have been difficult in your, your church, 
You've been relying on drinking of the good well of your marriage so that you have made your wife Jesus. You've asked her to give you things that, that she is not equipped to give. And you've been drinking from this good well and you've made it the ultimate well and it's not satisfying your heart. There's others of you who are drinking not from shallow wells, you're drinking from dirty wells. You're drinking from the dirty well of pride and self-pity. I actually think that is the sin that's most common to us as ministers. It's the twin coin of pride and self-pity. On the one side, oh, how great my gifts are. Why isn't anyone paying attention to them? You laugh because you know. Right? We drink from that dirty well all the time. And we wonder why our hearts are not satisfied. Some of you are drinking from the dirty well of anger. You're drinking what you think will satisfy your heart, which is to hold bitterness against your officers. Or bitterness with your staff. Or bitterness with the little old lady who comes out and criticizes you every other week. To such a degree that when you see her coming down the hallway, you figure out alternative pathways in the church to avoid her. I know. I've been there. I have little old ladies like that. Right? And you have stored up the sweet, dirty water of anger and bitterness. Perhaps it's come out as rage and you've been drinking from the dirty well of rage. It's the the dirty little secret of your staff. Men, none of those wells will satisfy your heart. But God invites you to come tonight to drink from a deep well with clear, pure water that alone can satisfy your heart. It's the deep well of the glory of God displayed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the great preacher Samuel Rutherford. He says this, Oh, pity forevermore that there should be such a one as Christ Jesus, so boundless, so bottomless, and so incomparable in infinite excellency and sweetness, and so few to take of him. Oh, you poor, dry, dead souls. Why will you not Come hither with your empty vessels and your empty souls to this huge and fair and deep and sweet well of life and fill all your empty vessels. Brothers, come tonight. Set aside your shallow well. Set aside your dirty well. And tonight, come to Christ Jesus Come drink of this well, this deep well of the glory of God displayed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Drink him in and say, oh, Jesus, you're beautiful and you are excellent. I saw that last night, but now I know I must appropriate your glory and drink deeply in how marvelous you are and how great your way of salvation. Remember the glorious first days of knowing Jesus Christ and drink once again like you did back then. Because when you come to see the glory of God, what you hear Paul saying to you is, how deep. But he says something else. He says, how high. 
As he invites us to measure the glory of God, to see if we can, he, he tells us how deep, it's bottomless, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But it is so high, it's measureless. What does he say? He says, how inscrutable are his judgments. Excuse me, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Indeed, the way our God has ordered his mighty acts of salvation, the decisions that he made, the judgments that he rendered, they're, they're far beyond what we could have imagined. They are higher than any of us could climb, far beyond any mountain peak we could envision. When you consider the wisdom and the knowledge of God, surely we come and say, Oh Lord, you are not like man. You are far higher than me. Surely you dwell in high and lofty places. Surely you are God most wise. Because when we consider this glorious purpose of salvation, this grand design of God, surely is far beyond what we could have imagined, what we could have put together. After all, we would have never thought that God would allow the eternal Son of God, eternally generated, eternally in the very being of God, eternally with God from, from before time began, that this eternal Son would come and experience the humiliation of, of life in this world, of being born, of being born poor, of being born not as a king, but as a laborer, of going about for three years teaching those who would not listen, of dying a sinner's death on the cross. Who would have thought of that as the way of salvation? I wouldn't have. Would you? Who would have thought that God would allow this eternal son to be cursed by his own creation, to be mocked, to have a crown of thorns placed upon his head, to have his own creation take the cat of nine tails and whip him, to have him stretched to where his own creation is nailing him to the cross, all for your salvation? Who would have thought of that? Would you? I wouldn't have. Who would have thought that God would raise this son from the dead? That, that being placed in a new tomb and remaining under the power of death for three days. And then on Easter Sunday morning, that, that God would call and his son would rise. And that he would roll back the stone so that all could see that he is not there, but he is risen. And he's risen for your justification. Who would have thought of that? Would you? I wouldn't have. And yet, these are the, the central pieces of the narrative, the central events, the central facts upon which your salvation hangs. Is it any wonder that Paul, at the end of 11 chapters of unpacking the central truths of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he would step back and say, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And just so that we don't miss it, he puts a fine point on it by quoting two Old Testament scriptures. First, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. For who has known the mind of the Lord? In order to remind us that, that no finite human being has enough human wisdom in order to discern God's mind or to tell him how to run his world. Who's known the mind of the, who's known the, mind of the Lord? The answer being, no one. So what right do we have in order to plan our own salvation or to order our own lives? 
Surely this is in the province of a mind, of a wisdom, of a knowledge that is both deep and high, far beyond all searching outs. But then he quotes from Job chapter 41, verse 11, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, in order to remind us that God is a debtor to no man, that he is placed under no one's debt, that he is the only free being in the entire universe, that we're all contingent upon him. We are all dependent upon him, and particularly in this matter of our own salvation. It's, it's all of grace from beginning to end. None of us could save ourselves. God must act, and he acted in such a way that was consonant with his own glorious wisdom. And so his entire purpose of, of salvation for his people, through Jesus the Messiah, was, was thought out from eternity past, in such a way as to display before the angels and demons, before the principalities and powers, before all creation, before all humanity, how high his wisdom is, how high his knowledge is, how inscrutable his ways are, and how beyond searching out they are. Friends, come again. Come again and measure and stand in awe. Are you tempted tonight to think it's some part of you that, that the degree that you receive when you graduate from seminary really, in fact, is what you are? A master of divinity? <laughs> I think sometimes as ministers we think we are. I think sometimes we believe... That, that our confession of faith is, is not only true, which it is, and right, which it is, and the things most surely believed among us, which it is, but it's all there is to God. No, friends, all along the way, our history of doctrine has told us that, that the best that we know is all analogical knowledge of God. God is incomprehensible, and all that we know is what he has revealed to us. Why is that the case? Because he is high. He is unsearchable. He is inscrutable. He is sovereign God. And you and I will never master him. And so we must come again, as we did those first days of seminary, and stand in awe before this God and say, Oh God, your glorious salvation displayed in Jesus Christ is high. And I see now, tonight, as with new eyes, that you are a glorious being, beautiful, excellent, that I must adore because your mind is beyond my mind. You are deep and you are high. But God's glory is also wide. It's all-encompassing. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. In other words, there is nothing in all creation that doesn't have something to do with God. Right? I mean, he is the source of all things. All things are, are from him. Indeed, all things, from life's first breath to its final cry, from the morning sunrise to the East Asian monsoon, even the devil is, is God's devil, as Luther says. At some level, God is the source of all things. He ruled all things in such a way as to bring himself most glory. All things are from him. 
But all things are also through him. He's the agent of all things. In God, all things consist. In our God, all human beings live and move and have their being. As Dr. Kelly wisely said last night, if atheists truly had their wish, they would, they would, they would be overwhelmed by how the world would just simply fly apart. If they really got their wish, there would be no God, then the world would simply fall apart. Because in Him all things consist. God is holding all things together. In Him we live and move and have our being. He, he restrains evil and He provides good. And particularly as the agent, not just of creation and providence, but particularly in His great work of providence, our salvation, our redemption, He is the agent. For the Father planned it and the Son accomplished it. And the Spirit applies this glorious redemption. So that He is the agent of your salvation in every aspect from planning, accomplishment, and application. He is the agent. God is the source. God is the agent. God is the goal. For from Him and through Him and and to Him are all things. Indeed, the grand design of God in our salvation is that all humanity would bow the knee, either willingly or acquiescently. But every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, they shall all bow the knee, they shall all confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when all things are in subjection to him, including the final enemy, death, then Christ will take this glorious kingdom, this world made new, and he shall present it back to the Father. Why? Paul tells us, so that God might be all in all. Because all things will find their ultimate goal in him. God emanates his glory, but his desire is for it to be reminated, reflected back to him. So that he would be the, the source and the agent and the goal. That's how wide his glory is. It's all encompassing. It encompasses all of creation, all of providence, all of salvation. The entire biblical story in which our little stories are a part. It's all for God's glory. You know this. But we need to come again. We need to come again. Because the broken roads that you have walked on along the way, they were from God and through him and to him in some way. Of course, we have the problem of evil as we wrestle through how, how is it that God's the source and the agent and the goal. And yet, brothers, we have to remember that the worst day of human history was the day when, when the eternal Son of God was drugged from courtroom to courtroom on trumped up charges of justice. And he's, he's drugged around Jerusalem on these trumped up lying charges. He's beaten. He is mocked, he is robed, and he is, he is crowned with thorns. And then he's stretched out on a cross and hung between heaven and earth and mocked by his own creation. It's a day of unspeakable evil, and we call it Good Friday. How's that possible? It's possible because God's glory is wide. Things are from him and through him and to him. And if that's true for King Jesus, then as you are mocked and you are drugged around from 
stem to stern. And you were opposed. And you were depressed. And you were sorrowing. Even these things must work together for your salvation. How do I know? Because God's glory is wide. He is the source and the agent and the goal. And friends, there is coming a day when, when your life story shall be laid out. As you come to the end and you look at the course that you have been given to run or to change the image, you look over the, the sheet of music that you have been given to play. What you will find at the end of it are simply three letters. SDG. My dad was very concerned about my musical education growing up. And so he introduced me to two musicians. One was the king, Elvis Presley. And the other was Johann Sebastian Bach. And uh, as a 14-year-old, being forced to listen to Bach's organ works, I gave the predictable response. But I, I secretly liked them and continue to love Bach to this day. Those of you who know something about Bach, you know that whether he was writing St. Matthew's Passion, one of his great religious works, or whether he was writing the, uh, the coffee cantata, uh, something that was light and, and relatively secular, regardless of what he was writing, he would write either on the back of the last sheet of music or at the end of the piece of music, those three letters, S-D-G, Solo Deo Gloria. Because whether it was religious music or secular music, it was all for God's glory. Because that's how wide God's glory was. Now, friends, there's coming a day when you will look down the pathway of your history as God gives you opportunity to see the sheets of music that God has given you to play. And what you will find written on your life and on your ministry, whether you minister to 30 or 3,000 you will see written at the end of those sheets of music, S-D-G. Why? Because God's glory is deep. It is so deep and unfathomable and bottomless, you will not be able to plumb the depths of the glory of God and His salvation for you. And it is so high that you will not be able to measure the glory of God displayed in His wisdom and knowledge in working out your salvation in Jesus Christ. And God's glory is wide, so encompassing that your ministry and your parenting and your marriage and every aspect of your life will be measured by the glory of God that encompasses it all. So that beginning, middle, end, it will have written upon it so Holy Deo Gloria. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we believe. Help our unbelief. We do believe that You are such a glorious being. That You, in Your very character, Your triune being, are so glorious and beautiful and excellent that there's an eternal mutual indwelling that displays your great love for yourself and your enjoyment of yourself. And yet, Lord, you condescend to have that spill out towards your creation so that we might be drawn into your very glory, that we might receive it and reflect it back to you so that we would somehow have a taste of how deep and how high and how wide your glory is. Oh, Lord, we do believe this. Forgive us for the times when we live as though we don't. And restore once again 
to us such a sight of your glory that we would be all for you. Every part of us, our mind, our mouths, our hands, our eyes, our lips, our ears, our hearts, our feet, every part of us, body and soul, we belong wholly to you, wholly consecrated to you, because you are worth it. And even if you were to eat us up, as, as one of the children said to Aslan, it would be worth it, because you are such a glorious and beautiful and excellent being. Oh, Lord, persuade us. Persuade us tonight. Remind us again and grant us such a taste of your glory this night that we would be satisfied if we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. His greatness is beyond our comprehension, but men, we have an opportunity now to reflect that glory back to him. Our hymn is hymn 164, Stand and Sing to the Glory.